Hello, everyone. Welcome to Motor Mania. Yes, it's your Saturday morning car talk show live between now and midday. What's coming up this morning? Well, motoring journalist Damien Reed will be joining me to discuss the latest news, and that includes the global launch of Mercedes' flagship EV limousine. We'll also have. Details from his exclusive chat with the head of Volkswagen Middle East. Now they've just launched three new cars in the last two weeks, so more on that later. Now, regular listeners will know we love a poll on this show, and today I want your views on e-scooters. Yes, Sharjah police have just seized 181 from the Emirates roads after riders flouted traffic rules. So I want you to tell me where do e-scooters belong on the road? Or on the pavement to vote. Take a look at our Instagram story at Dubai I 1038 FM, and I'll keep you up to date with the results throughout the program. Now that's all coming up, but first it's time for a full hour with motoring expert Matthew Davidson in Fix It or Flip It. Of course, Matthew is Motormania's valuation guru. He can tell you how much your car is worth now and if you should sell it. All you need to do is give him details of the make, the model, the year, and the mileage. You can send all of that to us in uh, three ways. Really, four zero zero one is the SMS number. You can also use the ARN Play app. That's free of charge. Or, and we prefer this, give us a call zero four eight seven one double five double zero. And we do give priority to callers. Now uh, let's check in with Matthew. Now, good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Ray. You're How right. Are you? Yeah, very, very well. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. It's been quiet this week, but um, Ramadan is one of my favourite months of the year, so I'm yes. enjoying that. Yep, yep, yep. And all ready for a, a full hour of valuations. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Really looking forward to it. Uh, well, as I just said, the number uh, for everyone to call is zero four eight seven one double five double zero. You can also message in on four zero zero one, or give us a call and leave a message off air, and we can play it into Matthew as well if you're a little bit shy. But why is uh, calling you the best option, Matthew? Yeah, when people call in, we can actually discuss a little bit more about the car, and, mm. and you know, some people. Have particular trim levels and um, stories about the car, so it's much easier if we can talk live. And what an opportunity to get all that information um, from somebody that's uh, been around the block a few times. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's that. You have certainly been that, and you've uh, you've done valuations for much be approaching around a hundred people now on this program, and um, you know it's it's very very useful. Zero four eight seven one double five. Double zero. Right now, the switchboard is completely empty, apart from Matthew is our only caller. So, if you call in now, you will get through to Matthew first. Zero four eight seven one double five double zero. We're also uh, broadcasting live on Facebook. If you're at home and you want to watch the show uh, live now, um, while we're waiting for those calls to come in, uh, Matt, I wanted to ask you about the topic that we're covering in our poll today. Um, Sharjah police have obviously recently seized 181 e-scooters uh, because. Riders flouted traffic rules, and they were seized for offences such as driving in undesignated areas, um, users failing to wear protective gear, and just generally not following safety rules and, and road traffic rules. Where do you feel that e-scooters belong on the road or on the pavement? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because I, you know, they're still relatively new to our world, and I, I look at. Scooters, and I, I kind of feel they need to be more on the road than than the pavement. Mm. But they need that proper safety gear if they're going to be on the road. 
Um, you know, for, for me, I go running in the park on uh, Palm Jumeirah and you get these e-scooters coming towards you about 25 kilometers an hour and it's, uh, it's pretty hairy. So I'm not a fan of that. Um, you know, we need, we need to somehow regulate where they can be used. Yeah. Um, but the most important thing is safety. I mean, I've, I've been in the, the UAE a long time now and I've, I've seen, it, unfortunately, a few accidents r- regarding motorcycles and bicycles. And, and I kind of don't want that to happen to the e-scooter world. So, mm. you know, maybe let's get some helmets on, some reflectors, etc. cetera. Uh, but just, you know, they're, they're, they've got a place, haven't they, e-scooters? Mm. They're not going to go away, but we just we just need to be safe. The, the thing that makes them great, uh, in my view, which is the, the whole sort of nippiness, the zippiness, you know, you, you can you can go so fast and you can, you know, you could, they're very, very agile, is also the thing that I think makes them a bit dangerous because, you know... I think, you know, there's been debates for, for years about cyclists and, and, and cars sharing the same space. If there's if there aren't sort of specific uh, cycle lanes, um, then, you know, you can have a, a bike sort of come out of nowhere or feel like it's coming out of nowhere, you know. And I think the same danger could exist with e-scooters unless there's, um, you know, proper sort of safety safety measures in place. And if they're wearing high-vis jackets and if they've got helmets and, and if the lights are, are working and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they're all kind of important factors to think about. I, I think you raise a really good point. It's the acceleration. I mean, mm. all, all electric motor-driven um, e-scooters or cars or whatever the torque the the amount of uh, power that goes immediately to the wheels Mm. means they can move so quickly Uh, and i think yeah i've witnessed that myself as i said running through the park one comes out of nowhere and you just about avoid it so yeah we 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 do need to to focus on that side i would like to continue to see e-scooters but just in the right places yes. and, and with the right safety gear, to be honest. Uh, Cody, uh, Jackie, another caller waiting as well. We're going to get to them in just a moment. But we want to talk just quickly about um, people's concerns over buying from secondhand car garages, because this is uh, something that people have approached you about quite a lot in the past, isn't it? What, what are the major f- uh, factors that people are worried about? Um, well, look, you, you've got. The, the quality, the condition of the vehicle is always number one. Am I going to buy a lemon, as they say? Mm. The, the second part is, I think the best advice I can give is don't fall into FOMO. Don't, don't fear that you're going to miss out on that vehicle. Because, you know, somebody contacted me this week and said, you know, I went to a used car dealer. I put a deposit down um, based on it having an inspection. And then the car came back um, in pretty poor condition. But the garage then said the deposit was non-refundable right now before anybody says you know that's that's illegal they can't do that you know what contract was signed yeah but you know do you want to go through the hassle of going through courts etc and and you can you can avoid all of this by just simply saying to to anybody selling a car private or a dealer i want to inspect this car i'm not prepared to put a deposit on this car until the car has been inspected Mm. now they say we won't do that, then maybe that's a red flag and you should walk away and it saves you the cost of an inspection. Mm-hmm. Or if they uh, don't agree and they say you must put a deposit down because maybe the car will sell, tell them you're prepared to take that chance. Say if it sells in the interim period, then I can live with that. It's, it's not the car for me. But I, I, I always advise people, if you're putting a deposit down based on an action like an inspection, that's the wrong way to approach it. Mm. Get the inspection first. Get all the information and clarity on that car. 
then you can place a deposit while you get your finance or anything else in place. You should never feel pressured into purchasing anything, especially if it's a significant amount of money, if it seems sort of too good to be true. or You know, one thing I sort of immediately sort of puts my heckles up a little bit is when people tell me, oh, it's it, you've just happened to have walked in at the moment where there's a, a massive sale on and there's only five hours left. You know what I mean? It's just like, wow, what are, what are the chances? Um, you know, for today only, I can reduce this by X amount um and you just have a feeling well you know you're just telling me that to try and pressure me into a sale but you know a significant amount of money is going to you know change hands you need to have time to think yeah and i can i can assure you there will always be another car mm. even if you think that was the right car in the right color they always come along and sometimes it actually forces you to look at other options which end up being the better ones anyway yeah. so just always remember don't pay a single during until you've got all the information you need, whether that's going to the agency to get service history, whether that's doing an inspection, get all your information first. If that car sells in the interim period, move on. It's mm. not a big deal. Uh, that's the voice of Matthew Davidson. He's our car valuation guru, car expert. He's here with us until 11 a.m. this morning. So we've got 50 minutes with him now. Um, if you have a particular question you would like to ask him, uh, not even related to the valuation of your car, you can text in 4001 or give us a call 04871 But the main reason he's here is to give you live valuations. Uh, Cody is our first caller this morning, Matthew. Good morning, Cody. Morning, morning. How are you? Yeah, very well. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm good, thanks. Fantastic. Uh, take it away. What would you like to ask Matt? Uh, so I drive a 2015 Renault Duster, mm-hmm. and, and I've been the first owner. I bought it new from the showroom, so, and I've always had it uh, serviced at the dealership. So I always wanted to know, because there's a lot of people selling Dusters online, is it, uh, is it a benefit for me, or do I get more from that kind of uh, history of the car? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what other um, information could you tell us? What's the mileage? Uh, 104,000 uh, kilometers. Okay, good condition? Yeah, yeah, good condition. Never a problem with the car. Okay, Matthew. Yeah. Well, look, morning, Cody. When, you, when you're trying to sell a car, you, you've always got to play to your strengths. Now, one strength would be, of course, that you're the first owner of the car. It means that a potential buyer hasn't got to guess and second guess who's owned it and what they've done with the car. They're meeting you. They can see you. Um, that's That's the first point. Second point is you'll always get maximum value for that car selling it yourself because a dealer predominantly will take that car and pass it on to what's called a trader because they won't want that stock necessarily at that age and those kilometers. So they'll take a chunk and then the trader needs to make their money. In terms of value, those cars at the moment, I would say, are selling for 17, 18,000 dirhams. Um, they're very good value for money. I mean, they're very good value for money, brand new. So yeah. If you're looking to sell now, put it on the major websites, get it onto Facebook, etc. You're looking at around seventeen, eighteen thousand, and it should sell relatively quickly. How does that sound, Cody? That's fantastic. That's great. Good. Well, thanks for calling. Uh, be like Cody. Give us a call zero four eight seven one double five double zero. Jackie is on line number eight. Good morning, Jackie. Jackie, don't leave me hanging, Jackie. Oh, well, we can't, we can't get to Jackie. Uh, we've got a text here uh, for you, Matthew. This is from Johnny. Uh, he has an Audi 2019. It's a Q8 S-Line trim Quattro. It's black. It's got warranty. Uh, 23,000 kilometres. He'd like to know the price. Now, that's a beautiful car. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of the Q8. I, lo- I love the styling. Uh, I think that car 
now is is coming into its second model year, being a 19. Mm-hmm. I, I would say with those kilometers, around 275,000 dirhams. Um, but there's not a huge amount of inventory on the market. Uh, and I know this sounds crazy, but a lot of them that were floating around, they, they went over to the country Q8 because pe- people are, are making a big deal about that the, the, the car is the same name. I mean, written differently, but it's the yes. same name. So, um, yeah, 275 thousand will we'll probably get you that car sold that will do it johnny uh, line seven it's andre good morning andre yeah cheers guys morning good morning how you doing lovely thanks yourself yeah very very well uh what would you like to ask mm. matthew so toyota prado 2012 mm-hmm. hundred and ninety thousand. the car runs like a dream you know mm-hmm. now the question is, do I sell it? Because I have this thing in my mind that if it goes over 200K, difficult to sell and loses value. Yeah. So do I sell it now or do I just hang on to it for another two or three years? Okay. Toyota Prado, Prado to- 2012, 190,000, worried about reaching that 200,000 uh, milestone. Matthew? Yeah, there's some good questions in there, Andre. One of the things that I would ask you, do you know if it's the four-cylinder, which is a 27 or is it the bigger six-cylinder, which is a four-litre? Yeah, it's the, it's the four-litre model. Okay, so that, that is by far the more desirable model. Look, these cars, if it was any other car, I'd say 200,000 is something you should be worried about. But with a Prado, it isn't. There's so many people chasing these cars, particularly the V6 as well. Um, they run and run. As long as you maintain them, they're incredibly reliable. And I doubt that you could replace it with something that would be as reliable. In terms of value, uh, I would say because it's a 4-litre, you'd be up around 70, maybe even 72, 73,000 if you were to resell it. But if you don't need to sell, you could keep that car for another two, three years, and I bet you would still sell above 50,000. How does that sound then? Mm, that answers my question. I don't want to sell it like my baby. It's just, it's just like clockwork. It just runs and runs and runs. You love it. Oh, well, good. Well, I'm glad you got the answer that you want, Andre. Really yeah. appreciate you calling in. And Vivek is our next caller. Good morning, Vivek. Hi, good morning. Hey, how are you? you doing? You're right. All well, all well. Thanks. Good, good, good. I, I, how, how can we help, Vivek? Okay, I just had a few questions on my car. Mm. Um, it's it's a 2010, uh, yes, that's the day, uh, the year, uh, uh, Toyota Corolla, okay, mm-hmm. 1.6. Mm-hmm. It's clocked 409,966. Crikey. Uh, yeah. Okay, kilometers. Yeah. Uh, it's been running in, in, you know, mint condition. There's absolutely no issues with the car. The mm-hmm. is fine. Everything's mm-hmm. perfect. Uh, I, I would actually, uh, you know, want to know how long could these engines last? Because 400,000 kilometers is yeah, quite yeah. a bit of... It's getting up there. Vivek, you've got a bit of a dodgy line, so I'm just going to fade you down for a bit, but I think we've got the gist of that. You've got a Toyota Corolla 2010. It's a 1.6, and it's getting up to 410,000 kilometres, wondering how long can this thing go on for, Matthew? Ah, great question. Yeah. Um, And it's not quite how long is a piece of string, because you you can obviously calculate this. Well, look, you've got different components of the engine that will obviously get replaced in time. Things like spark plugs, which are are very important because as the fuel and air goes into a cylinder, as long as it's firing correctly, that'll keep the cylinder in good condition. So, you know, as long as let's assume that this car's always been serviced properly, spark plugs changed, 
air filter, fuel filters, etc. These could easily do five, six hundred thousand kilometers. Mm. No problem at all. They, they may give up earlier, but the, the car maintenance is always about the smaller things that grow into bigger headaches. You wouldn't believe that just changing the spark plugs could stop an engine from going 200,000 kilometers more. But it's, a, it's an integral part of the car that does the main function, which is ignite fuel and, and air mixture, which uh, moves the, the cylinder. Mm. So look, I, I think um, if it's good, you've got another 200,000 kilometers. Value-wise, that car still would sell for 14,000, 15,000 dirhams. Okay. But if it's, run, if it's running well and it's been maintained, I would say to Vivek, let's, uh, let's keep it and continue to drive. So that could, uh, based on sort of my basic maths calculations, that could do you for another five years, Vivek. How, do you, how does that f- sound to you? No, well, I think that uh, that's quite okay because I drive about almost about 300 kilometers a day because I'm on to, yeah. uh, into sales. So, yeah. yeah, I think it should be all right. Good. So that was the news you wanted. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Good. Uh, have, a, have a fantastic rest of your weekend. Uh, let's go to line two. Patrick is there. Patrick, good morning. Good morning, guys. I've got a Toyota FJ Cruiser, mm-hmm. yes, model. Yep. Uh, 2012, sitting with 49,000 kilometres on the clock. Mm. Uh, looking at evaluation for it. Okay, 49,000, 2012 FG Cruiser, Matthew. Well, Patrick, we talk about these cars often on the show. They're, they're not made anymore. They're super desirable. But the 2013 with just 43,000, you will get a lot of people chasing that. I, I would say easily 75, but I think you could even get 80,000 for this. They, they will be chasing that car. And, and don't undervalue this. I've said it before. Cars that are quite rare like this. You'll put it on online, and somebody will lowball you and make it sound sensible that you should take sixty. A week later, it's online for eighty. Um, that is a fantastic car. Be careful; it's worth seventy-five, eighty at least. You happy with that, Patrick? Oh, very, very happy. That's true. People do undervalue it because of its age, but no, it's a great runner, and uh, that, that's good information. Thanks, appreciate that, Matthew. No problem. Thank you very much for calling in, Patrick. Uh, let's go to line number four. I'm being quick because we've got so many callers. Uh, we, we want to get through as many people as possible. By the way, zero four eight seven one double five double zero. if you want to join in the fun. Uh, Anil is on line four. Good morning, Anil. Morning. Uh, hi there. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I've got a Lexus 570. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a 2010 model. Mm-hmm. Uh, first owner, and uh, it's a second car, so it's only done 170,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get an idea on its valuation. Okay, great. And I've got a note here that says it's been serviced by Lexus uh, for the last sort of eight years, so it's um, been serviced in-house. Right, serviced by Lexus for eight years, and then the last two years with Dynatrate, which is, again, an authorized uh, uh, Toyota Lexus. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, what would you say, Matthew? Well, LX570 is that big car, that big seven, even bordering eight-seater car. Um, Lots of people love this car. You see them, they're they're very uh, powerful-looking when they're on the road. Uh, Even though it's uh, 2010, this car, because it's been so well-maintained, and Dynatrade are a good aftermarket uh, servicing company, you'd probably be looking at 110, maybe even 115,000 dirhams for that car even though it's 11 years old now. They're, uh, they're very desirable. How does that sound to you, Anil? 
sounds great. I, I don't want to sell it, but I uh, just want to get an idea on its current valuation because initially I picked it up for three fifty-five. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, I'm well, glad you're yeah. happy with that, Matthew. Yeah, that that, that 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 car is um is, is if he does sell it, is is going to sell even in two more years for probably uh, late eighties, early nineties. That they're, they're just they're just sought after. Okay, uh, let's go to line number three. We've got Stuart on the line. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, very, very well. Tickety boo. Thanks very much. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, very good. Thanks. Good. And how can um, uh, how can Matt help you this morning? I uh, just kind of want to get an idea of value for my car. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an Audi Q5, mm-hmm. twenty sixteen. Um, it's done. 179,000 kilometers, no issues, mm-hmm. just kind of gone. We want to get an idea of the value. Are you calling? Are you thinking about letting it go or uh, moving on, or, or are you just, just out of interest? No, not really. No, just interest to see its current value. It's Perfect. been a very good car. That's, that's why we're here. Matthew, what can you say? Morning, morning. Quick question Is it the V6 or is it the four cylinder? Uh, four cylinder. Okay. Now, we talked earlier in the show about the importance of 200,000 and that it didn't really matter on the Prado. It does matter on a, on a Q5, a European car passing 200,000. You will, you will see that value sink. I would, I would say you're, you've got a lot, a lot of kilometers as well for a car that's just five years old. You know, you're yeah. averaging 40,000 kilometers a year. It really is time to get out of that car. My my feeling on value is you've got to be quite aggressive because of the kilometers. I would mm-hmm. start out on the market around 45, see how yep. people respond to that. Um, it should move at that price, but you need to get out of this car, not just because of the kilometers and the psychological value of them, but also mm-hmm. that's going to start getting expensive. Out of warranty, a lot of kilometers, you, you might be spending quite a chunk of change on servicing that. Stuart, okay. hopes, hopes that helps. helps. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very uh, much. Yep. Moving on quickly, just because we want to squeeze in Chris before uh, the next break. Chris, good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you? Very, very well. Uh, what would you like to ask, Matthew? Yeah, I have a uh, Cayenne S uh, 2011, uh, clocked about 134,000. I might need to sell it. Okay. And I was just wondering, everything has been done, drive shaft has been exchanged, front and back, uh, bushes. Uh, brakes done, everything actually I would not sell this car if I would not maybe move Yeah. so the... um, I just want to know how much I should ask for it Okay, Matthew Well, stop stop reversing Sorry guys The warning the warnings work in the car, so that's good that's a good sign Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the parking, parking sensors. I know yeah. that car very well um, Look Look, from a kilometer perspective, what did you say it has? Well, uh, one, uh, 134,000. Yeah, yeah. This car's worth around 60,000 uh, with those kilometers. Uh, an- another car that, that you know yourself, you've just explained it to us, that it's starting to cost money. You're spending uh, a-, a fair chunk of money on servicing that car. But at this point now, that's going to continue. It- it's not, it's, it's, you know, the old golden gate bridge scenario you paint at the beginning and by the time you get to the end you need to start again it's just it's just going to keep costing you money um but at this point it's worth about sixty thousand. 
it's a good time to sell cars when you've got them running well because yeah. it's when they when they go wrong nobody's going to buy that car not for any any substantial value put it out there for 60,000 let's see if it goes how does that sound would that okay. help if you with your next move chris well, it does, certainly. Yeah. Much appreciated, guys. Much no, appreciated. No worries. And good insights. Thanks. Appreciate that. Thanks for calling in, Chris. Uh, Matt, our next caller is Upendra. Good morning, Upendra. Good morning, Ray. Good, good morning, morning, Matthew. Hello. How are you doing? You're right. Yes, yes, I'm doing well. So I have a 2011 GNC Yukon. Uh, I love the car. I have uh, bought it new from Al Gandhi. It's been with me for 10 years. Uh, black color, 174,000, uh, full option, SLE. It's an eight-cylinder. Mm-hmm. Now, what can I get for it if I do decide to sell? Okay, Matthew. Morning, you Pandora. Uh, so this Morning. car often often leaves at this age, leaves the region. They tend to go across to Saudi, Oman, etc. because they're really big cars, the Yukons. You know, you can move eight people very comfortably around in this car. And as you say, it's got the, the big engine, the V8. These cars probably will be late 30s, I would say. Like 37, 38,000 is what I would, I would put this car out online for if I was selling it. Uh, based on the fact that you're the first owner, you really need to highlight this. Very few 10-year-old cars, uh, especially Yukons, have a single owner. So that should probably be your headline, first owner. Uh, is the first thing you should say when you're selling this car. But yeah, 37, 38, let's see how it goes. How does that sound to you, Pendra? Uh, that's good. In your opinion, then, should I keep it for a year or two or sell it? What call should I take? Well, you've got an advantage that very few people have. You know this car since the very first kilometer. So you know how you've maintained it and looked after it. You'll never get that again if you buy a, a, another used car anyway, only if you buy a new one. So... If it's running fine um, and you've been on top of the maintenance, you could keep it for another 18 months, two years, and I doubt it would depreciate much more than a further 5000 So, yeah, if, if it's working well for you and it's working well for your family, then I would consider keeping it. Thanks for calling in, Upendra. Uh, Calvin is next, and then we managed to get Jackie back. Uh, we'll have a chat with her, but good morning, Calvin. Hi, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, what would you like to ask Matthew? So 2018 uh, Grand Cherokee, mm-hmm. it's the full house S model, got about 57,000, 58,000 Ks on the clock, mm-hmm. might want to be looking to upgrade. Are you looking to, 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 to say goodbye? For, for the valuation, <laughs> oh, yeah, I might, might want to say goodbye. Okay, all right, uh, Matthew. Uh, morning, morning. Uh, one of the very popular cars here in the region, the Grand Cherokee, because uh, they're very solid. They feel great on the road. They're comfortable to be inside. And you can do a little bit of off-roading in them as well. In, in terms of value, I would say around 115, 120 is, is that value. Uh, be careful about maybe trading this in against another, another car because you'll get a lot more money for this selling it privately, as we discussed earlier in the show. Um, but I would get that car out online for 120. 120K. Is that, is, that, is that what you're looking after, looking for? 
Uh, yeah, that'll do. Uh, that'll probably help with the next card deposit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, thanks for calling in, Calvin. Uh, have a great uh, rest of your weekend. Uh, Jackie, you're back. Hello. Yes, hello. And it wasn't your fault. It was our fault. So uh, let me just put that on the record. You were there. You were saying, yes, I'm here, I'm here. And uh, we, could, we couldn't hear I you. I was. <laughs> uh, so now you're here. Uh, let's make the most of it. What would you like to ask Matthew? Okay, so I've got a uh, 2014 Ford Explorer Limited. It is high mileage, I believe, 300,000. Mm-hmm. Um, just really wanted to know what it's worth. Um, I've looked at a few traders, but they're offering me super low price. Mm-hmm. Um, so opinions, is it? am I going to get anything for it, uh, 300,000? Or should I keep it running until it's... Uh, and how long would the engine last for these big cars? Did you, did you tell us the year, Jackie? I might have missed it. 2014. 2014. Okay, Matthew. Yeah, Jackie, good to have you on the show. Um, in terms of one thing that will help me is how long have you owned this car and have you been maintaining it? Has, has it been relatively trouble-free? Uh, yes, no major issues. It's had regular services at Altaya. It's just the last year I've gone elsewhere. Um, I was the second owner, but I literally purchased it when it was 6,000 kilometers. So I've kind of had it all its life, basically. Yeah, so, so that, that is, that's critical. because And the fact that you've serviced it predominantly at Altaya, which is the Ford agency, all the way up to nearly 300,000, that paints a nice story. The value, if you sold it yourself on the open market, twenty six to 28,000. Um, traders and dealers, I bet they've been offering you seventeen, eighteen thousand. Um, yeah, they will. They, yeah, they will not be able to uh, appreciate like a private person buying it that you've been the one that's owned it, etc. Don't misunderstand me. They'll be sell- selling it for a similar value, but your route to get maximum value here is definitely putting it out there on Facebook and the major websites, highlighting again that you've virtually owned this car since new and it's got that full agency history, I think you'll get twenty six to 28000 still. You'll probably end up selling it to a friend of a friend of a friend. Yeah. How long do these engines last for? Do they go on for a few hundred thousand more, or should I think about getting rid of it now? I've seen Ford Explorers do 400000 450000 when they've been maintained the way you've maintained it. So I don't think immediately you've got an issue with the kilometres. Um, but yeah. it's probably a good time to sell. I think over the next couple of years, that's going to drop down below 20,000. Um, it's still yeah. only a seven-year-old car. But once it gets to nine, ten years old, then it'll go on its next wave of depreciation into the teens. So, yeah, I would say move it on now, Jackie. You've, you've loved it. You've got some good value from it. But take that money, that twenty-six to 28,000 and, and move on. Happy with that, Jackie? Great. Yes, thank you so much for your help. Good, and thanks for calling in twice. Twice, thank you. We appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, Have a great weekend. Uh, Let's go to line number four and PJ. Good morning, PJ. Hi, good morning. You're right, PJ. You driving? I am driving, yeah. Hands free, no doubt. Mm -hmm, Excellent, excellent. Uh, What would you like to ask, Matthew? I have a Mercedes GL500. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a 2015, uh, done 69,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So relatively low mileage. Uh, very happy with it. No problems. Been fully serviced with Gokash from day one. Um, traditionally, I've always 
all the cars after the warranties are typically, you know, within the five-year period. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I've held on to something for six years plus. Uh, I thought, you know, how long could I carry on with this one without it losing much value and what would be the current value? Okay, so it's a Mercedes GL500 2015, 69,000 white. I've got a note here that it's got full options. And you're thinking, you know, should I hold on to this for a bit longer? Matthew. Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think it starts to become expensive servicing it at the agency. So one of the things that you can look at is servicing it outside of the agency. Um, is it is it AMG kit? Do we know that? No, no, it's not AMG kit. Okay, so it's it's just, it's just the, the the normal GL five hundred. Um, That's look, right. In, yeah. in terms of yeah, in terms of value, I would say it's probably around. 120, 120, may even do uh, 125. Uh, would I sell it if, if it's running really well and you've had it virtually since new or from new? Um, you can look at some good aftermarket, aftermarket servicing options apart from taking it to Mercedes. And I would say probably the sweet spot to sell this car would be when it's eight years old. Um, I think it would start to depreciate quite a lot after that. And that's when it really starts to get expensive. So maybe keep for another two, three years if you really like the car, but maybe switch to servicing it uh, a little bit more affordable. How does that sound, PJ? Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. No problem. Thanks very much for calling in. Uh, be like PJ, 04871 That is the number to call. We're moving into that last sort of 15, 16, 17 minutes with Matthew. So if you are going to call, now is very much the time. He's doing live car valuations, 04871 uh, We've got Whitney Houston up next. But have we got time, Zena, for, to, to talk to Shakti before Whitney Houston, or should we talk to Shakti after the break? We can talk to Shakti now. Okay, uh, Shakti, Good morning. Hi, good morning. Hey, how are you doing? You're right. What would you like to ask, Matt? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm good. Uh, how are you doing? Very, very well. Very, very well. How yeah, can we okay, help? good. Yeah, uh, I'm using a Volvo V40. Mm-hmm. Model year it is 2016. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, till date it run at 140K. Mm-hmm. All the services are done in a Volvo service center and the parts which are changed during warranty is original Volvo uh, replacement. Okay, great. So what is the value I could get for the car? Perfect. Volvo V40 2016. I've got a note here that it's red and it's 140,000 kilometers, Matt. Yeah, morning. Thanks for calling. Um, yeah. The kilometers are getting up there now, but the fact that you've been maintaining it at Volvo is, is a big plus. It gives people peace of mind that, that, that it's been looked after. I would say yeah. value-wise, probably forty to forty-two thousand. Uh, you could okay. try a little bit. You could try a little bit higher to start with, maybe at forty-five. But my feeling says that car will sell from forty to forty-two thousand. Okay, okay. We've got Simon, we've got Dominic, we've got a, a text here from Chris as well. We want to get through all of those and do speed quotes. So let's let's uh, do this as fast as we can. Uh, Simon is on line seven. Good morning, Simon. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, how could Matthew help you this fine morrow? Yeah, hi. I've got a, um, a 2014 VW Touareg. It's got 91,000 kilometres on the clock. But it is on Omani plates. And what I'm looking to find out is whether or not I can actually sell it in Dubai. With COVID, I've not been able to get it back to Oman to do a full export. Mm. and wonder whether I can actually get rid of it in, in Dubai without doing that. Okay. Matthew. 
Uh, unfortunately, you can't, no. Um, and, you know, you could advertise it here and you could find a buyer and then they're going to be very annoyed when you won't be able to to actually sell it to yeah. them. The way that you need to do it is you're going to have to wait till it, it opens back up. Then you go over to a man, do an export to Dubai. Um, as long as it's in registration still, you won't need the actual car. But if you if, if it isn't, then you will need to do an export test there. Um, but no, you won't you won't resolve this until a man's uh, back open. I'm afraid. Mm. If you want to know the value, it's going to yep. be late late fifties, probably fifty eight, fifty nine thousand. But um, yeah, just keep driving it until you can resolve this issue. Uh, it's not why Simon called, but just out of interest, uh, Matthew, would would the price vary between what he could sell it for in Oman and what he could sell it for here if if the if the licensing wasn't an issue? Uh, Omani cars generally, as a rule, I'm not saying this is an exact science, are about 10% more expensive. Right. Um, but it depends on the type of car. With with a Volkswagen Touareg, they're not as sought after as the Japanese models like the Toyotas and the Nissans because there's big distances between the Omani towns and cities. So they like the cars that can rack up the kilometers. But um, if you did sell it there, it would probably go to an expat. And, and roughly about 10% more. So uh, at a 10 to 1 conversion, you'd be looking at around, what, 7,000 Omani Rials? Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Can I just ask one one final question, which I didn't put in my original message? It's actually originally registered in Qatar. Would that impact on its value? No, because it's still GCC. So yeah. it, 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 it won't. Um, what, what really affects values is when they're imported from outside of the GCC region. Um, so right. if it was, say, a U.S. U.S. import, something like that. But, no, it shouldn't affect the value, certainly not at this age anyway. Uh, Simon, I hope that perfect. helps. Just moving on for uh, speed purposes, time purposes. Uh, Dominic is on line four, and I think you'll be our last caller, Dominic. Good morning. Hi, good morning, guys. Good morning. How can Matthew help you this morning? So I have a 2014 Dodge Ram, mm-hmm. and it's my daily driver. And I'm looking to part ways with a 50 year it's at about 233 mm-hmm. performances. And you're looking for the valuation? Yes. Okay, I've got a note here that it's a 5.7 uh, and it's GCC spec, Matthew. Uh, morning, morning. Probably the Lamary then. Um, in, in terms of um, the value, the kilometers are getting up there. I would say late 50s, early 60s. Maybe even start around sixty-two, sixty-three thousand. Um, they're great trucks. They they've got one of those kind of names, the Dodge Ram, where you know that this car is just going to hold some stuff for you, and you can throw anything in the back of it—bikes, bricks, whatever. Um, but yeah, I would put it out there, sixty-two, sixty-three, uh, and and see. And then if need be, you can always drop the price down to say fifty-nine. But uh, let's see, let's see how we get on at sixty-two, sixty-three. How does that sound to you, Dominic? That's great. Thank you very much. Okay, good. Uh, thanks for calling in. Thanks for everyone who called in uh, and to our uh, texters as well. Chris sent a message in that we just want to uh, have uh, time to get your view on here, Matthew. Chris says, I want to buy an Audi RS4. What sh- what year should I be looking at? Oh, RS4s are not very common. You, know, you can't just rock up and, and pick one up. Mm. I mean, in terms of what year... 
that's that's quite an easy one for me to answer because let's find one first. Um, <laughs> I, I bet there's probably no more than five for sale in the UAE. Mm. Uh, I'm not exaggerating at the moment. Um, I would I would want a later one if I was going to get one. So maybe at least the sort of 2014, 2015. Uh, that uh, that. Um, yeah, you'd be paying around 125, 130,000 for a 15 uh, with reasonable kilometers. But yeah, f- f- finding one's going to be more of a headache than deciding exactly what model year. So hope that helps you, Chris. Uh, thank you very much to him. OK, uh, we've kind of found our way there again, uh, Matthew. It's time for Speed Quotes. Um, we have got very optimistically, Zena, our producer, is nothing if not an optimist. She's got 10 lined up for you, OK? So don't do more than 10, uh, but we will aim to try and <laughs> <laughs> do more than seven. Ready to go? Yeah, okay, I'm ready. Let's get started in three, two, one. BMW 328i Sports 2013, 134,000 kilometres. Uh, early 40s, 42, 43,000. Audi RS5, 2011, 135,000 kilometres. Uh, expensive to maintain, they're dropping uh, 60, 65,000. Hyundai Santa Fe, 2016, 57,000 kilometres, lady driven. Oh, well, definitely 40,000. Ford Raptor, 2012, 140,000 kilometres, eight cylinders, one owner. Yeah, they're, they're picking back up good money now, probably about 120, 125. Range Rover, 2017 Sport SE, 43,000 kilometres. Is it, was it the Sport, yeah? Yeah. Uh, that would be about 195, 200. Mercedes 3200 AMG, 2012, 90,000. 60, 62. Volvo XC90, 2014, 155,000. I'm, I'm going I'm to count that. I'm going to count that because you've equaled the record. Seven. Did I not do eight? I, I sensed that was eight or eight. No, it was seven. <laughs> <laughs> if you wouldn't just keep hesitating all the time and just give the answer like a, like a robot, we'd be all right, wouldn't we? But no, well, you do, have to I think have about to, it. I, I, I do have to actually think about what the value is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I take my job very seriously. You I know. know, I know, and we appreciate it. And uh, I think so do all of our callers. We had uh, dozens of calls there. It was uh, fantastic. So thank you so much, Matthew, as, as always, um, for, for coming on. And we'll, we'll chat to you in two Saturdays' time, if that's all right with you. Yeah, you take care. I'll speak to you soon. Fantastic. Uh, thanks to everybody who called uh, Vivek, Patrick, Anil, uh, Dennis, Stuart, uh, Chris texted in there, uh, Jackie calling twice. Uh, we appreciate all your calls. And uh, this segment of the show is in every single edition of Motomania. So stay tuned because we'll be back with it in two weeks time. Uh, after the break, we're going to have the latest motoring news with Damien Reed, And we'll continue chatting about the e-scooters. This is Motormania with Ray Addison. Powered by ServiceMyCar.com. Now shut up and drive. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Yeah, morning everyone. You are listening to Motormania. And this is your chance to talk cars and keep up to date with the latest motoring news. Now, still to come on today's show, Phil Clark 
technical expert at 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants, will be joining us to discuss the rise of e-scooters across the UAE. Are they safe and where do they belong? On our roads or should they stick to the pavements? Now, we've been running a poll on our Instagram page at Dubai Eye1038FM over the last hour or so. And uh, you can go on there now and you can vote. Click on our story and you can vote for road or pavement. Now, so far, 74% of you are saying they should stay on pavements and only 26% uh, of you uh, are saying that they should be on our roads. Uh, But that could change. We'll give you the results uh, throughout the rest of the programme. So if you want to get involved and have your say in that, you can go to our Instagram page at Dubai Eye1038FM. Click on the story story and vote. Um, Here to uh, chat with me now a little bit about the latest motoring news, including this story, is motoring journalist Damien Reid. Good morning, Damien. Good good morning, Ray. You're right. I'm very well, thanks. It's a beautiful day out here. So, uh, yeah, loving it. Enjoying the last bit before it gets hot. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's starting to get that way, though, isn't it? Whereabouts are you at the moment? Uh, well, I'm right here in Dubai at the moment, so uh, yes, just just running around doing a few things here before I um, lock down for a day of work, so uh, enjoying it while I can. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, sunny Dubai. Uh, Damien, uh, thanks for, for joining us. The, the, we've got a bunch of things we want to talk about, um, but first on the list, we've been discussing these e-scooters, um, and as I sit here in uh, Dubai Eye Towers, out of our uh, massive window here in the studio, I can see um, quite a few people on their scooters, and they're sort of zipping around around um, the sort of media city, internet city area that we're, we can see from here. And, you know, there's a lot of them now. And, um, you know, not everybody's happy with them being on the roads. What's your view? Yeah, they've kind of, they've, they've, they've created this little bit of a divide, haven't they? They've, they've kind of broached the area from cyclists to cars. And, and there's, there's people who say, well, they're going at fast enough speed where they should be on the road. But then the motorists say, well, they're not. They're, they're hogging the lane and they should be on the on the footpath. Mm. But, uh, you know, um, I know with some areas, and Media City is one of them in parts of the areas, where they've actually created walk lanes and cycle lanes as separate divided areas, which um, to me is, 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 is one solution where as long as the cyclists, as long as the e-scooters stay or, and, and the e-bikes stay on that path, that's okay. Because, mm. you know, you do have them because they're completely silent. And you're you're relying on someone, you know, ringing a bell or or warning, sending a warning that they're coming up behind you because they are they do crack along at a pace, but not fast enough to be on a road. It's it's a real tricky one. Yeah, and it's it's difficult. You know, sometimes I see people, and you know, to my view, they don't seem to have um, the proper protection on. Certainly, if they're not wearing helmets, and then sometimes you see people, and it looks like they've sort of gone and got themselves a an ice hockey uniform <laughs> and are sort of wearing that, and you're like, wow, that must be that must be hot. So, there, there, you know, there seems to be. You know, lots of different approaches uh, to this. Over in Sharjah, uh, the reason we kind of were prompted to talk about this, they've just seized 181 e-scooters from uh, the streets of Sharjah because they were committing, uh, you know, road offences. They weren't wearing protective gear. They weren't following safety rules. And also they were in undesignated areas. And so we do know that the police across the Emirates are kind of, they're keeping an eye on this and they're making sure as best they can that everybody follows uh, the rules that, that are laid out. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, this is a, it's a phenomenon that's, that's come across from, from Europe mainly, where e-scooters have taken off massively along with e-bikes and that sort of thing. If you look at parts of Europe, for instance, in Spain, 
they're all registered. They all carry little license plates right. on them. And, and, and that was, that was initially brought in to curb the, the people who, you know, they, they hire them and dump them. And, yes. and we've got that issue as well in Australia and other parts where people hire them and just leave them on street corners and it becomes litter. Mm. Thankfully, we don't really have that problem here in that regard. But the concept of maybe registering them, so therefore they have a license plate, so therefore they're accountable for any kind of traffic offence is, is probably not a bad idea. Well, people in certainly, you know, you know, my home country, the UK, people have been saying that about cyclists for, for years and years and years, you know, and, and, and yet that's that sort of never, never come about. But they're saying, well, hold on, you're on the you're on the roads and there's potential for accidents. And, and uh, you know, how do we know who you are and, and how do we sort of take responsibility for, for what happens? And yet that's sort of never, never come about in, in the UK. I'm not sure about the rest of Europe. So do you think that it could happen? here yeah i mean i I think there's a a cause for it and for for cyclists as well to 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 be registered because Mm. what that does i mean i know i know the arguments very clearly on both sides and and they're quite they're quite valid in in a lot of ways that cyclists say well look we 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 don't impact on the road so therefore you know it's not like a heavy vehicle so you know your your road taxes are paying for the repair and upkeep of the road and that sort of thing but the other side is that a lot of for instance um, uh, professional people on site like couriers or that sort of thing in Australia, I know for sure. You know, they they run red lights to to get that job done. Causes accidents, mm. and um, and and of course they they go through without without the, the camera can't pick up a, a license plate. Um, so maybe that's something that, that that would come down to what Sharjah is doing in terms of traffic offences. That because the UAE is one of the most heavily populated areas in the world now for for traffic cameras. Mm. Um, that that maybe they could you know. That would help them stem the flow and 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 keep an eye on that in terms of um, you know, just basic traffic offences. If they're on the public road, then they should obey by the laws of of, uh, of the road. Well, I'm going to be talking to Phil Clark uh, from 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants a little bit later on this same topic. Uh, but with you now, let's 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 talk now about the uh, premium luxury car market. the The results are out from first quarter sales, and uh, buyer confidence is returning. Yeah, it's really surprising, and I can't. I found it as a real surprise, considering what we've just been through with lockdown and showrooms have been closed and everything else. But there is a bounce back. There's been a big bounce back here and in other markets as well, um, particularly at the top end. I mean, we're looking at uh, Rolls Royce globally were mm. up sixty two percent on this on this, the first three months of last year. Wow! Um, and that was you know the first three months that that's to the end of March, obviously. So that's before lockdowns kicked in, really. Mm. So we we can't sort of sort of say, oh, that's, that was because of COVID. It was be, it was pre-COVID, these these numbers. And we're talking about the first three months this year where there is a lot of lockdown going on in, in still in parts of the world. In this region, for instance, Porsche Middle East had their best first three months in five years. And it was the best um, first three months for their, their, their baby SUV, the Macan, mm. since they launched it. And that's going back to 2014. So there oh. is... Um, People are spending money on cars, which is which is uh, encouraging to see that that it's ticking the economy over again as we sort of break out of. Hopefully, we break out of yes. of, of the, the the COVID cycle. So I've got a theory. So we none of us we didn't go on holidays, did we? Last year, we all, you know we all sort of were locked down and, and and being careful, and there was you know global flight restrictions and all that kind of stuff. And so consequently, you know, people have a maybe a little bit more money in their bank that they would have spent you know going away on flights and accommodation and everything else, all the costs of holidaying. So do you think maybe this has added to that a little bit? Maybe people are saying, well, hold on, I've got an extra ten, fifteen, twenty thousand. Maybe I can I can put into a, you know, a luxury car. 
Absolutely. I, and I think that's a big part of it because all of us, I'm sure, have you know have something set aside for for an annual vacation with the family or just to get away somewhere. Mm. And living here, of course, it usually involves a flight and 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 uh, and and a you know, travel to another destination. Now, if you're a family, if you've got you know, one or two two children, that that adds up to have air tickets and accommodation and and all the usual things. Now, if you put that together, if you add that up. There's the value of a car yeah. right there. Now, if yeah. you're also looking at the value of the equity that you have in your in your existing car, so you can double that figure, even triple that figure, mm. suddenly you can think, "Wow, I could get something quite nice." Yeah. And there, and and the, the, there's the other thing too is that last year, um, when car, when car showrooms were, were were closed, and they were generally closed globally, is that people and people were in proper lockdown, so they were using that budget to to order things like new TVs and and videos games and and uh, computers and things like that delivered to them in-house entertainment because yes. they couldn't move out yeah. now that's been freed up they're thinking well let's get out let's go for a run to Hatter let's go for let's go down down to Leeway let's do something in our new car Absolutely. and that's i think that's definitely spurred things on uh, let's chat about VW. They've been busy um, ahead of Ramadan. Three three launches in two weeks. Yeah, well, that kind of flows nicely from what we we're just talking mm. about. And uh, yeah, I, I I managed to sit down and have a bit of time with the managing director of Volkswagen here, Victor Dalmau, and he was saying that yeah, that definitely there's there's a, a a buyer fatigue in there because of COVID. So what they decided to do was they've had three models that were launched in globally towards the end of last year leading up to now. And normally what they do is they we, we launch very soon after the global launch. Mm. And they decided to go, okay, let's let's hang on to it for the moment because Ramadan is a is a season where where people like to you know it, it's it's a it's a boom season for, mm. for, for buying goods and cars. Showrooms are open till midnight uh, all that sort of thing. So they mm. said so let's wait until just before Ramadan, and we'll do something I don't think any importer's done here before, and they've launched them all at the same time. So there's uh, three new cars that have all come out. That's the uh, the Terramont, which is the the seven seat family SUV, mm-hmm. uh, the T Rock, which is a new model. It's it's a, a it's a a baby SUV, but but it's bit funky it's like the golf gdi of suvs if you look at that way because you have the tiguan as a family car and then of course the golf gdi itself so and they've all come out literally in two weeks and uh and yeah they're just sort of hedging their bets that it's going to be nothing for for the first three for three months or effectively and then boom as we go into ramadan so uh they're very very busy down there this week i'm sure but have you have you i mean obviously the launches have have taken place have you been able to sort of catch up with him again and see how things going was it worth the risk yeah i mean we we uh i I went to the terramont launch two weeks ago and we're discussing it then Mm. um the uh the t-rock i had to miss out on because it was i had other events going on but then the, uh, I caught up again this week for for the Golf GTI launch uh, last Wednesday, and um, yeah, I mean you could see that the whole team was. Yes. <laughs> it, it pushed them to the limit. They were tired. Yeah. But they achieved an awful lot, and uh, and yeah, the demand was there. Now what they're doing is that Volkswagen has become pretty much an SUV car company now, with the exception of the GTI, because mm. it's such a popular model in the Middle East that people, when they walk into a showroom, they not necessarily not even looking for a VW Golf. They want a Golf GTI. Mm-hmm. And they said, right, well, let's bring that one in anyway um, as our only non-SUV yeah. for the for the range. 
and, uh, and it's working. So there's, you know, these are just being released as we've, as we, we started the first week of Ramadan last week rolling out. And, uh, he's very confident that, that it's going to, you know, work very well for them over the course of the month. And then that will feed on, he said, because it also rewards the team. It reward, it, it psychologically, yeah. you know, it, it puts a bit of confidence back into the showroom and also mm. back into, into buyers knowing that, wow, things are happening again. Uh, Damien, I totally see why he's done that. It makes absolute sense. One story I wanted to chat to you about is the news that Cafu and Ford have partnered to tell drivers when it's time to refuel. What do you think of this as an initiative? Um, it's an interesting one. I mean, firstly, I think Cafu is a fantastic idea. I was, mm. I was at home, you know, as, as you guys know, I know for, for quite for during the during the winter months in, in Australia, and there's a couple of times I was thinking. I wish I had Cafu here because <laughs> you look at the petrol queues and yeah. it's it, it's the same issue. Um, love it. Uh, as for telling you when it's time to refuel, I, I don't know. I mean, I thought the gauge on the car would tell you that, or, <laughs> or your or, well, or your you know your self awareness, knowing how many kilometres you've travelled and the and the light low fuel light. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting idea. So, I mean, obviously, convenience is something that we we all love in Dubai, um, and this is this is actually not a built in feature. Feature people can use it. You have to have the right kind of car, and you have to obviously have the app as well, the Cafu app, and it, it works with certain cars, and it tells you when you're down to 20%. So it gives you a little notification. So, you know, I guess, you know, we've, we've all been there where we've we've ended up, you know, we've seen the gauge, and then we forget to, you know, go and get the fuel, and you don't look at it again the next morning. The next thing you know, you suddenly see the light coming on. So this this is there to avoid that, and it's obviously there to sort of let you know when you're on 20%. And I guess, although I haven't got it myself, I'm guessing it kind of keeps, you know, keeps notifying you until your uh, fuel gauge goes back up. So there's no chance of of forgetting. Um, actually, earlier this week, uh, Damien, I was chatting to uh, Maurice uh, Tanas. He's the head of partnerships at CAFU, and here's what he had to say about the initiative. So all CAFU customers who operate and own a Ford and Lincoln vehicle from 2007 onwards simply really have to connect their CAFU app via Bluetooth to the Ford Sync and Sync 4 infotainment system using their Android phone. And once they're connected, the integration is really seamless. They'll be able to see CAFU on the dashboard of of the vehicle and access the refueling features via touch or voice command. And really the interesting part is you'll be enabled to have a predictive feature to be activated. When your fuel level reaches 20%, you get a notification stating, hey, your fuel level is low. Would you like to refuel? So imagine your full pack day, running errands, having to to pick up the kids or having things to do every single day, every single hour. The last thing you want to do is stop and wait up at a gas station and wait up in long queue. So what we're doing here is we're notifying the customers that, hey, your fuel level is low. Would you like to refuel? And they can refuel whenever, wherever, simply via the convenience of a touch of button uh, on the dashboard. And everything comes in through utilizing the integration between the Kafu app and the Ford infotainment system. Usually that yellow light that everyone fears pops up, we don't reach that level. Mm. We just make it at 20%, just as enough for that they are notified that, hey, you know, refuel now, be ready for your next day. So this is where we're headed, isn't it, Damien? You know, tech is just going to continue to play a role in, in improving vehicle features and, and just kind of like meaning, making sure that we can't forget things like this and just making life a bit more convenient. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I was being very simplistic before, but you know, Cafu is a, is a, a, an amazing function, mm. and uh, and I and I can definitely see, yeah, where there's a benefit in this because, 
yeah, especially at the moment where the where more more of us are spending time working from home. We're not using the car every day, and you do get that situation where you're either at home or you're in the office. You jump in the car and you realise, oh, I can't actually make it to where I want to go because I've got to stop off and get some fuel. Yeah, and then that throws your entire you know timeline out as to when you've got to be somewhere because you've got to you know actively search for a garage and do all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean to have a, a an app that tells you. How, it might you know, ding at 9 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night saying, hey, you don't have a lot of fuel in the morning. Mm. Get it fueled before you jump in the car in the morning. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can see a lot of merit in that. But that, that's where we're all going. The smartphones are connecting up the, yeah. you know, uh, with um, AI technology as well, hooking up with cars. And it's becoming a major thing now where it's, it's getting the stage, Ray, where your car key is becoming your phone. Your phone is is the, is the key to your car. It's the it's the way that you access your vehicle and start it and set the features up inside it and now remind you when you need to refuel. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, well, more innovations like that, uh, I'm sure, in the future. Now, um, there is going to be a very special. Let me get. Let me see if I've got this right, Damien. The, the launch is is about to happen on Thursday, or it happened last Thursday. This is for the Mercedes EQS. It just happened last just Thursday. Happened. Last okay. Thursday night globally. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Tell us about um, that then. This is huge. This is uh, Mercedes have their EQ range, which is their electric vehicle range, but this is the S-Class equivalent. So they're their flagship luxury car equivalent, mm-hmm. fully electric vehicle, and uh, and it's it was just launched on Thursday night globally. Not sure when it's going to start flowing through the showrooms. But it's the first model based on this new Mercedes architecture that will be used for all electric vehicles. So you can expand the wheelbase, you can expand the the, the wheel track, the width of the car, the length of the car to suit every Mercedes model. Mm. And this is the first one. And it's uh, it, it is the the big flagship. It's a complete redesign of what we know about Mercedes in terms of the way the car looks. That the three the, the traditional three box shape of you know engine and cabin and boot has been replaced now by more of a two-box shape. So you've still got the engine shape, but the cabin of the car now flows like a teardrop down to the tail of the car, but like, like a hatch style almost. Mm. Um, enormous amount of room inside. And uh, and electric charge, again, huge techn- uh, technology gains in, in batteries as well. So we've now got... Um, a massive range with the car. It's uh, We've got up to 770 kilometres of range before you need to recharge. Wow. Wow. That is huge, isn't it? Absolutely stunning. I mean, there's there's two options with the car at the moment. There's the the, the uh, two-motor two version, which is 385 kilowatt. So it's a motor in each axle, so it makes it all-wheel drive. Then there's also a performance 560 kilowatt virgin, mm. version that has the 108 kilowatt hour battery. That's the one that gives you 770 kilometres range. Now, in Europe, they've got the fast, the, the really fast charger network, which we don't have here quite yet, 200 kilowatt chargers. When you top up there, you're getting 300 kilometre range top up in 15 minutes. That's, mm. that's, that's the time you pull into a garage to fuel the car up and grab a burger and a coffee and jump back in the car again, and you've got another 300 kilometres. That is amazing. Uh, we don't have the price for that, uh, but we know it will be very expensive. Uh, we do have the price for the Maserati Ghibli Hybrid. It's 289,000 dirhams. Yes, so I've been spending a couple of days running around in the, in the new Ghibli Hybrid. Um, Big move from Maserati. We all know about Maserati being the ones that make the, the gorgeous V8 sound and the burble and all that kind of thing. Mm. That's gone. That's going now with this car. It's a two-liter four-cylinder uh, with a with a hybrid uh, power plant. So um, it's uh, it, it gives um, 
it gives V6 turbo performance for the, the value of a, of a, of a two-litre four-cylinder. Mm. Um, and we're talking about 450 newton metres, 325 horsepower. Um, it's rear-wheel drive. It runs through an eight-speed automatic transmission, but it gives four-cylinder performance. We're talking um, 200 and, uh, 225 kilometres an hour, I think, mm-hmm. is the top end. I've just, just escaped me at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's it's the it's the big one that's coming in for Maserati. They're they're going a, a full electrification, and it, it's sort of the precursor to. There's going to be a Levant, which is the SUV, mm-hmm. as um as a as a hybrid coming very soon as well, and then we've got full electric cars coming. Um, or by the end of the year. Mm. Now, in terms of like, and just quickly, Damien, because we're rapidly running out of time. But in terms of sales, they've they have improved their sales uh, since 2012. They sold just six thousand cars um, eight nine years ago, and they set a target of fifty thousand. They reached that in 2017. But how has COVID impacted on their sales? Yeah, well, it's it's it, unfortunately like, an amazing job. But six thousand sales were in 2012. They said, "Look, we're going to get get to fifty thousand soon." And quite frankly, no one really believed them. But they did it because they brought out mm-hmm. the Levant, the SUV, and uh, and uh, they brought in the diesel for Europe. And eighty percent of the new buyers were bought the diesel. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting one. And this hybrid now replaces the diesel. Um, they hit fifty one thousand, as I say, in twenty seventeen. Uh, COVID has knocked things around quite dramatically. Um, their, their sales have slid um, a fair way down. I don't have the exact number in front of me right mm. now, but um, uh, but also they've spent millions of dollars revamping two factories to take the the new electric vehicle production. So now they need to the sell some cars. <laughs> they need to yeah, sell well, some well, cars. Yeah, well, now what they're doing is they've got ten new models that are going to be released over three years, and wow. uh, and and they've they've got these models we just talked about all before the end of this year. So they're definitely on the way back up. That's for sure. Uh, Damien, as as always, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, you got a busy week coming up. Uh, very busy. I'm just about to scoot over to the NBC studios, and we're going to start calling Saturday's action of uh, of Formula One action from uh, the Italian Grand Prix this afternoon. So uh, it's, it's it's all action stations. <laughs> very exciting. Uh, you can follow Damien at Damien Reed on Instagram and uh, social media, and he'll be back with us in two weeks' time here on Motormania. Coming up after the break, we continue the e-scooter safety debate. Phil Clark will be joining us from 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants. There's more to come on Motormania with Ray Addison. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, on Motormania this morning, we've been talking about e-scooter safety, hearing your views on where they belong, the road or the pavement. You guys have been voting on our Instagram story page at Dubai Eye 103.8 FM. And at the moment, the majority of you feel, 71% that is, feel that they should be on the pavement. Uh, Just 29% uh, saying that they should be on our roads. Well, joining me on the line now to have his say is Phil Clark. He's the technical director at 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants. Good morning, Phil. Good morning, Ray. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Excellente. Um, Now, when it comes to these e-scooters, what, what's your view? We, the reason we're talking about it, of course, is because of Sharjah police just seized 181 uh, for violating traffic rules in the Emirate. And we're talking about offences like driving in undesignated areas, uh, the riders not wearing protective gear and just generally not following uh, safety rules or rules of the road. So where do you stand on this? Uh, where I stand on it is that I think the trial that uh, the RTI and Dubai police are, are having over the five areas 
is the right way to try and introduce these things. Mm. Have a designated area with, with designated tracks for them to use. Have a set of regulations and, and rules, if you like, uh, around their use so that it's managed and it can be monitored and, and dealt with properly. Um, I think, you know, using them on the road or the pavement is, is a bit of a binary question and it, it, it probably, um, they don't really fit into either of those mm. environments as it stands at the moment. Yes, definitely. And there's an argument for that. Um, I mean, from my perspective, I would I would certainly vote against the road. I just don't feel that it's it's safe at this stage. And, you know, until we have, um, you know, clearer guidance, I think, maybe on what safety measures need to be in place in terms of, you know, the, the sort of you know helmet and protective gear and speeds and, and signaling and all this kind of stuff. I feel like the road is certainly not the place to start. Meanwhile, you could say, well, hold on, it's still a hazard on the on the pavement because you know you're you're cycling or, or walking and suddenly somebody's zipping around behind you. So there's there's definitely a case for against both. Yeah, uh, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't like to see them being used on pavements because mm. I think. You know, the speeds of these things, although uh, some of them are regulated at about 20 kilometers an hour, uh, some of them can do a little bit more than that. But even 20 kilometers an hour, there's somebody whistling along a pavement, ducking and diving in and out of pedestrians. You've got people coming out of shop doorways or, you know, getting out of cars and all sorts of things. Mm. Um, I I think they're potentially a menace on the pavements um, and, and perhaps even more of a risk to other people than they are on the roads. Mm. On the roads, they're more of a risk for themselves, but of course they can also cause crashes between other road users uh, who are trying to avoid them. Absolutely. So I think at the moment it, it, it is a problem. I, I don't think they belong in either environment mm. as the infrastructure and the rules and regulations stand at the moment. I think the trial is the right way to go. Yes. Um, how long that's going to last and you know, how they're going to make the decisions as to where they go from there, I don't know. But I, I think we're losing sight a little bit of what they were being introduced for. The original idea was that they should be used for the first or last mile or kilometre here, I guess, of the journey. So in other words, to connect people from home to their local um, sort of public transport hub, like a metro station or a bus station or yeah. something like that. Um, and in that context, then that's where the infrastructure needs to go. Um, and you could have either designated tracks um, from residential areas to those those public transport hubs. Or you could come up with some sort of properly managed shared use of cycle lanes. Mm. Um, now, cyclists are probably going to you know, want to uh, hang me for making that comment. But I, I think... You know, what we're dealing with here is a vehicle that doesn't really fit into the the normal road vehicle category, and it's not really suitable for use on footpaths. So it needs to go somewhere else. And Mm. if you haven't got somewhere else constructed specifically for their use, then maybe cycle lanes is is a compromise that that might need to be looked at. You you mentioned the the RTA trials in October. Uh, Those areas were Mohammed bin Rashid uh, Boulevard, Dubai Internet City, uh, 2nd of December Street, Alriga and JLT. Um, Also, as part of the trials, there was very clear rules for um, all e-scooter riders. And I've I've signed up to these these apps so you can hire these scooters. And, you know, they do do take you through um, all of the rules, the regulations, when you sign up they tell you how to safely ride and you you know you're it's not just like one of these sort of terms and conditions tick boxes where you don't even read it you know it actually takes you through all of these as i'm sure you know which i think is yeah. you know is excellent um 
And, and you know, they're saying that riders must avoid blocking the movement of pedestrians and vehicles. They've got to leave a safe distance between each other, just like we have to in our cars, uh, between bikes and, and pedestrians as well. And if you do break any of the rules, uh, it is considered a violation of, of the federal traffic law. And so the rules and regulations are in place. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time um, for all of this to, to be sort of uh, disseminated to, to the people so they know what those rules and regulations are. Yes, but those rules and regulations are in relation to the pilot. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the point here. I, I, I don't think, I, I'm not aware of any real problems in those pilot areas. If, if there are, they've not been very uh, widely publicised. Mm. I think the problem is that the, the feral ones, if you like, the private ones that people have bought um, and they're riding around the road. So I think they're the ones that are the real problem at the moment because uh, whilst I guess the police could argue that these rules should apply to them as well, um, you know, clearly people are riding them where they shouldn't because mm. I saw a couple going down Alasile Street the other day the wrong way. Um, you know, it's, it's the unregulated ones that, that really pose the problem. And that's that's not just in Dubai. That, mm. That's a global issue with these things. Sure, sure. sure. Um, well, but yeah. I think you're right. I think it will take time to bed in. Mm. Um, but it is the infrastructure that's the problem. Where mm. do they fit? You know, you've got half your audience saying, or 70% saying that they should be on the pavements or whatever, and the other saying they should be in the road. But that, that's that's a difficult one because, as I said, I don't think they fit in either place comfortably. Well, to be honest with you, Phil, if, if we'd ha- if we'd had the option which we which we didn't have on Instagram, we would have said non uh, neither. You know, we would have given people the option of saying neither, <laughs> and I think that would have been very interesting to see. Uh, but given, like you say, uh, that binary choice, I guess people, you know, the majority of people are going are going for pavement. Uh, we've had some texts in on this topic. Um, so Lloyd messaged in. He said. Uh, they have bells or horns, but they can't indicate. So you don't really know where they're going. Many of them just zigzag their way on the road or the sidewalk. Um, and that's the thing as well. You know, you, you, they, they are quite nippy. They can't get up to yeah. huge speeds. But they, and, you know, you mentioned the top speed of 20. My son's got one of these. Um, when I bought this for him, I didn't buy it with any intention of him using it on the roads. It was to be used in in a park. Um, and, and the next thing I knew, you you were seeing sort of adults going and getting their shopping on them. You know, so, and and, and the, the point on the speed, the, the, the less the rider weighs, the faster these things can go, because obviously, you know, yeah. he can get faster on it than I can you know, with the, <laughs> with, with the difference in weight. Um, Mesa messaged in. She said they're too slow for roads, too fast for pavements. Uh, maybe they should have their own lane. Do you think that this is where we're going to we're going to end up or they're going to share space with cyclists? Um, I think that is kind of where we're heading is mm. that they'll either have their own uh, designated lane, but then that creates a problem in terms of space within infrastructure, especially if you're trying to squeeze in an extra lane in existing infrastructure. If you're trying to do it in Deera or Karama or somewhere, you're, you're going to have a problem. Mm. When you're building something new, that that's it, and you've got you know space isn't quite the, the same uh, problem. That's okay. Um, I think probably what will end up happening is there'll be. Uh, sharing cycle lanes in other yes. places. Uh, I Drew, think that's where it's going to go. Drew messaged in on 4001, says, uh, I've got a suggestion. Why not require users to get a license? So this is a point that you were kind of making earlier. Um, Sam has had an experience uh, with e-scooters in Europe. Um, he said he was knocked over by an e-scooter in London and Helsinki. 
in two different cities, two different countries. So that's bad luck. Um, he said uh, <laughs> e-scooter riders have to be uh, here. Oh no, he says e-scooter riders here are more careful. Trust me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure they are. Um, and Grace finally messaged in on four zero zero one. Said I live and work in JLT and have been using my e-scooter. It's great for people who can't afford cars. Uh, more people are using them, so motorists need to find a way to get along with them on the roads, just like they've come to accept cyclists and delivery drivers. It's, it's this is a good point, isn't it? You know. Times do change. The way people live and work and the type of vehicles they use to to do that work changes and we all just do have to adapt. This is the future, basically. Yes, and and that's a very good point. We do need to adapt, but we need to adapt in a a kind of managed way, not not kind of a free-for-all where everybody is jostling for position uh, in the road space that's available. Mm. Things need to be properly regulated they need to be properly managed. The infrastructure needs to be designed and created so that it's suitable for all these different types of road users. I, that, please don't think that I'm saying e-scooters are a bad thing because no, I'm no. not. I think, I think they have a, a, a place within the, uh, the transport infrastructure. But mm. you, you can't just throw a new mode of transport into existing infrastructure without the proper regulation and everything else and expect it to work. Mm. Because, you know, we see this in Europe um, you know, it, particularly in the UK, there's a, there's a lot of vying for space between cyclists and, and drivers, and, and that's having to be managed by the, the, the local authorities in terms of providing facilities for pedestrian, mm. cyclists, and, and motorists. And I think the same thing has to happen with the e-scooters. Unfortunately, the way governments operate globally, they always react to these things once they've been introduced and you're starting to get problems. Mm. They don't perceive that this is a, a new mode of transport that's going to be appearing within a year or a couple of years and start dealing with how they're, or planning how they're going to deal with it. They, mm. they react to the fact that these things have suddenly appeared and now you've got to deal with it and do something. Well, if and you- I think... Phil, let me just that, tell, that's one of the problems. Let me just tell people uh, before we go to the break, um, you know, if you do own one of these, you know, there are rules and regulations in place. They, they must have um, headlights and taillights. You have to have a device for making a warning noise on them, just like a car does. Um, obviously, the, the brakes uh, front and back, um, they need to uh, meet the requirements, technical specifications and standards set by the um, authorities here in the UAE. And they need to be GPS tagged as well um, so that they... Uh, work within uh, certain areas so the, the limit of the speed is 20 kilometers per hour and um, there's a whole range of different specifications and standards set by uh, the RTA so if you are thinking about getting an e-scooter um, do your homework in advance make sure that you're following um, all of the rules laid out by um, the RTA and, and, and Dubai police and other authorities um, across the country um, and just make sure that you are safe and ride them safely because uh, you know they, they, they are amazing um, amazing devices and yet you know there is that risk of, 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 of you know, harm if you do take them onto our roads. Uh, Phil, we've been chatting about this issue of e-scooter safety on our roads. And um, one of our callers has rang in, one of our listeners has rang in. Claire lives in Abu Dhabi, where a lot of people use e-scooters to get to work. And this is what she had to say. They jump from the road, sometimes going in the wrong direction, then onto the pavement. And very often they're doing speeds well above 20 kilometres an hour. It's a danger to cars drivers themselves and other pedestrians. 
So she's got a very clear uh, view there, Phil. She also thinks that they should be licensed and insured um, so that there's um, more accountability as well. So, you know, th- this is this is the, the view from, from one of our listeners. If you guys would like to give your thoughts, give us a call 04871 Or, of course, you can text in on 4001 as well. Um, Phil, let's move on to um, a different topic now. Obviously, we're... It's the holy month of, of Ramadan and we're seeing less traffic um, during this time as more people are fasting and, of course, the, the pandemic as well. And while we don't have figures yet, our traffic reports here at ARN throughout the week suggest several road accidents have been uh, taking place every day despite that. Um, and so let's look at that issue of um, driving whilst fasting. Many of us are fasting, but we still need to drive. How can that affect our concentration and behaviour behind the wheel at this time? Well, Ray, I, I think most people are aware that um, if you're fasting, then you know, you're prone to things like dehydration because of lack of fluid or um, low blood sugar levels because of lack of food which can lead to poor concentration, um, onset of fatigue, um, and, and you know, general sort of lethargy and a lack of sharpness and an ability to make or react as quickly to things or, or, or to make accurate um, sort of judgments. I think everybody is kind of aware of that, it's, that, that that can happen to them. It's being aware that it is happening to them mm. that I think is important. Yes. Uh, so what I would say is I think you kind of got two two kinds of drivers here or potentially a, a, sub, a third subgroup you've got those who are fasting who need to be aware of the effects that fasting is having on them in their levels of concentration and it's the clues are not just from driving it's, it's anything else that you happen to be doing or working or how, mm. how well you're able to concentrate focus etc so i think that the fasting group of drivers need to be aware of how they're being affected by it and take the necessary steps to uh, avoid having problems you know if you're tired don't drive or um you know try and get somebody else to drive for you or something like that but mm. i i think they need to be aware the non-fasting drivers i think here and i've been here quite a, lot, a few years now um tend to just carry on as normal uh and one of the problems here is that if you don't make allowances for the fact that the fasting drivers may not be quite as sharp as they normally are um, then that in itself becomes a problem. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us, fasting or otherwise, uh, to make some allowances during the holy month of yeah. Ramadan. There's uh, also a third, third sort of subgroup, sorry, if, if no, I may just on, mention please. these. And, and that's, that's the group that could come from either of those groups mm-hmm. who drive aggressively anyway. They're the kind of people who will tailgate a meter off the back of somebody else flashing their lights and blowing their horn or they'll weave from lane to lane to overtake yeah. or they'll pull out of a side road in front of somebody else depending on the fact that or relying on the fact that that person will either break or change lanes or something to, to avoid a collision. Yeah. Those aggressive drivers know full well who they are and, and, and if they're listening now, they'll, they'll probably recognize those descriptions uh, of themselves. Um, they need to be even more careful because... Driving like that at any time of the year is a risky strategy. You're relying on somebody else doing the right thing to avoid a collision. To do it during the holy month of Ramadan when people uh, may not be functioning as sharply as normal is an even riskier strategy. So I think that there needs to be a little bit more restraint exercised by everybody uh, and a little bit more care. Um, because if you know people are not really, really sharp for, for four weeks or whatever mm. it may be, 
um, then then you should make allowances for that. Oh, that's a really just really... the same as we should make allowances when the kids go back to school in September. Yes, like yeah, that's a really interesting point. Uh, I'm just looking here at a um, road safety UAE survey. Um, they've they've done surveys over the years. They found just to conclude this conversation that older motorists, that's forty plus, I feel old now, uh, and uh, male motorists are especially vulnerable to accidents during the holy month. The peak accident timings are around pre-iftar, that's between 2 and 5 p.m., and the morning uh, rush hour from 8 till 10 a.m. The most dangerous days are Tuesdays, according to the Road Safety UA survey, and Sundays are the least dangerous. Um, and so that's, that's really, really interesting there. Are you surprised by any of those statistics? Um, I'm not really. Um, and the, the age and male factor, actually, if, if you look at uh, the number of people who are involved in accidents, the profile generally outside of Ramadan, um, the age group might drop down to sort of 30 30 upwards but mm. no i'm not really surprised by that um but i do think that uh, and of course the, the problem is as we do get older and and you're certainly not old by my standards um it, we are more susceptible to those effects of, of dehydration and yeah. low blood sugar levels yeah. as well so mm. no I don't, I don't think there's any surprise in those figures uh, phil i've got to say goodbye but thanks so much for joining us on the program giving us the benefit of your expertise really appreciate it and hope to chat to you again soon uh thanks to all of our callers as well throughout the show anyone who's calling in for the uh fix it or flip it or joined in our debate on e-scooters um just one last word from Mohammed on this one. He texted in, said, Good morning. I always consider the pavement is the safest place to walk. Now, if they allow scooters to be on pavements, I won't feel safe anymore. Uh, I think that they should be adapted somehow on the roads. Uh, thank you very much to Mohammed. Uh, just quick uh, final result of the poll. Scooters belong on the road, 29%, and on the pavement, 71%. But I, I do think, as I was saying to Phil, that if we'd had the option of neither, uh, maybe we'd have quite a lot of you voting that way as well. Uh, right, Motormania, it's time for us to go off air, but we're back on the 1st of May. That's Saturday, the 1st of May in two weeks' time. Uh, whatever you're doing this weekend, uh, stay safe, have a great time and we'll see you soon. Goodbye.